0: Father, thank you that we've been able to be here this evening. And Lord, we've been able to worship, been able to pray for each other, we've been able to share together. And I thank you, Lord, for what's been shared tonight. And Father, we pray now that you'll share with us straight out of your word. Father, we pray that your Holy Spirit will just be upon us and anoint us now. Because, Lord, we just long to see what you want us to know from your word. Lord, so we can put it into practice and see your power and your blessing amongst us. So, Father, teach us now, we pray, for we ask it in the name of Jesus. Amen. Amen. We come now to the second talk in the Church Life series, which we started last time. And let's just recap very, very quickly. In our first talk, we saw that the church we asked the question what is a church we saw that the church is where jesus lives the church is his home jesus lives in his people you remember we saw what i called the church universal believers throughout time from the time of Jesus onwards, the day of Pentecost onwards, throughout time, the church universal, and we saw the church present, that at any one time, there's all the believers alive on the face of the earth. And we saw that when it comes to the church present, that is broken down into individual local units, and that each group of believers coming together in obedience with God's word is an individual church. Now, from here on in the series, we are concerned with an individual church. That is what the series is about, and that is what we are concerned with from here on in, ourselves as an individual church, because that is what we are. The Chigual Christian Fellowship is where Jesus lives in Chigual. All right. We are the divine checkpoint Charlie between Chigual and and between heaven. We also saw that Jesus is the head of his home and that when you use the phrase the head of a phone," uh, the head of a home you immediately, wrong teeth in today haven't I? Yeah. As soon as you think of the phrase the head of the home you immediately think of a family and of course that is precisely what we as Jesus' home are. We are his home but we are also his family. We As the church, the Chigwell Christian Fellowship, as a church, we are God's family in this area. But you see, the thing is, there's a big difference between simply being one of the family and being a responsible member of a good family. Can you see the thing? It's one thing to be part of a family, you almost can't help that. But it's an entirely separate thing to be a responsible part of a good family and so tonight we come on to the subject of fellowship. We've seen what a church is, God's home, his household, but now we're going to move on to the basis of the relationships between us as part of the family of God, as individual members of that particular family. You can, after all, speaking in worldly terms, you can be related to your family. Indeed, you can't help it. You know, our biological families, you can be related to them, but without actually having the proper relationships that a good family ought to have, all right? So here, in Chigwell. We are all part of a church. We are all part of this family of God in Chigwul. We are brothers and sisters in the Lord. We are therefore related to each other and it's a blood relationship as well because it's through the blood of Jesus. So we are related to each other as a family, alright? But you see, the question is, are we in family relationship with each other? Do you see the difference between those two things? It is one thing to be part of God's family here in Chickwall, but the question is: Are we in family relationship with each other? And therefore, we come on tonight to the subject of fellowship, and we're going to ask. Last time we said, "What is a church?" Tonight we're asking the question: What is fellowship? Let's see the actual word. Go to the Acts of the Apostles. Acts of the Apostles in chapter 2 and verse 42. We read this. This is uh, talking about all the people who got converted right at the beginning of the early church. And it says, And they devoted themselves to the apostles' teaching and fellowship to the breaking of bread and the prayers. So here we see the early Christians, they devoted themselves to fellowship. Let's see it again. Go to 1 John, the first epistle of John, and chapter 1 and verse 7. We see the word again, and John writes, If we walk in the light, as he is in the light, we have fellowship with one another, and the blood of Jesus, his son, cleanses us from all sins. There you have it again. We have fellowship with one another. Now, we want to know, what does that word fellowship mean? Well, in actual fact, the Greek word, and that's the place to start, the Bible, the New Testament was written in in Greek, the Greek word for fellowship here used is koinonia. And that word, koinonia, in Greek, means quite simply a partnership. That is what koinonia means, a partnership. And it comes from the noun koine, which simply means common. Now, not common as in any old riffraff, although some would see our fellowship possibly in those very terms, but it's not talking about common as in the riffraff or anything like that. It's talking about common in the sense of having something in common and thereby sharing in it together, all right? Now, there are other words in English that we get from koinonia, all right? We get fellowship from it, but there are other words as well. We get communion, as in communing together. You know, if you sort of sit down and say, let's, we know that, you know, all the hippies used to do this, let's commune together, man, you know, and they sit down for a real heavy powwow. We get that word from koinonia. Uh, We get communication, that word comes from koinonia in the Greek as well. Also, the word community. These are all words that derive their meaning from the Greek word koinonia or koine, having something in common. And so when you think about it, communing together, communication, community, can you see the emphasis of the meaning of the word is that it's talking about relationships? And that biblically, fellowship or koinonia, is being in right relationship with your fellow believers as brothers and sisters in the church, the family of God. All right? That is what biblical fellowship is. Being in right relationship with your brothers and sisters in the family of God, in your church. Okay, right, we've seen that fellowship is having something in common. It's sharing something in common. Right, so what is it that we're sharing? Well, in fact, it's not an it at all. It's a who. It's Jesus. Jesus is the one that we share together. Therefore, fellowship is not just to do with each other as brothers and sisters fellowship is to do with the Lord as well and in fact what we're going to see is that the one comes out of the other we can only experience fellowship together as we individually experience fellowship with the Lord so that our fellowship with each other can only be experienced to the extent that individually we are having fellowship with God or are in right relationship with God himself. You're in 1 John, chapter 1, now find verse 3. And John says, That which we have seen and heard, we proclaim also to you, so that you may have fellowship with us, And our fellowship is with the Father and with His Son, Jesus Christ. So our fellowship with each other can only come out of our fellowship as individuals with the Lord Himself. But in fact, it's even more than that. And what I'm going to show you from the Bible is that the truth of the matter is that the Bible teaches that it is our fellowship with each other, as brothers and sisters, it's our fellowship with each other that actually demonstrates the extent and the quality of our individual fellowship with God. 3 verses 5 to 7. Again, 1 John 1. He says, this is the message we have heard from him and proclaim to you, that God is light, and in him is no darkness at all. If we say we have fellowship with him, that is God, while we walk in darkness, we lie, and we do not live according to the truth. But if we walk in the light as he is in the light, we have fellowship with one another can you see that what John is saying there is that he's saying that our fellowship with God, the true quality and extent of it is going to be made known by the quality of our fellowship with other people. It is no use claiming to be in fellowship with God, who is light, if you're in darkness with your brothers and sisters, if you're not right with them. So it boils down to this, the true condition of our individual relationship with God will only be seen and measured by the condition of our relationships with each other. So if you want to ask the question, am I really living close to God? Am I really as an individual close to Jesus, am I in fellowship in an ongoing way with the Lord? Now how can we bung a thermometer in our our mouth and take a temperature reading on that? I'll tell you. Look at the quality and the extent of the relationships you have with your brothers and sisters in the church. That is how we discover our true position before God in our individual relationships with Him. In 1 John, go through to chapter 4. 1 John 4 and verse 8. And he says, He who does not love does not know God, for God is love. It's no use saying that you are actually loving God now, this moment, in fellowship with him, if you are not also in a proper love relationship with your brothers and sisters. You can't claim to be loving God and in fellowship with Him now if you're out of fellowship and in resentment or hatred against your fellow brothers and sisters. Go to verse 20. If anyone says, I love God and hates his brother, he is a liar. Now, many Christians will think this language is uh, bordering on the intemperate, but the Bible is not concerned about that. Simple as that. Alright, you can say that you love God, but if you hate anyone, I'm sorry, you're a liar. And he goes on to say, for he who does not love his brother whom he has seen, cannot love God whom he has not seen. And the reason for that is quite simply this, God is invisible. Now, when someone's invisible, it's hard to verify things concerning that person. Therefore, you can claim to love God, and it becomes an unverifiable statement. Anyone can say they love God. It's a meaningless phrase. So, if someone wants to back up their statement that they love God, whom they haven't seen, then we can know whether that person is telling the truth, or whether that person is telling a lie, by looking at whether or not he's loving his brothers and sisters, whom we can see. Your relationship with God alone is unverifiable. Therefore, it's verified by your relationship with other believers. And that is a tremendously important thing to get hold of. Anyone can say they're in ongoing fellowship with God. But we know who actually is by the quality of the fellowship that they are sharing with other believers. Right, so we've seen that fellowship is the sharing of our lives together as a church. And fellowship is also the means of assessing the relationship with God we actually have as individuals. Not the relationship we say we have, but the relationship we actually have and there can often be a difference between the two. And you see, this is why you can't go it alone as a Christian. There is no such thing as solitary Christianity. Although the notion is very widespread amongst Christians, it hasn't come from the Bible. Solitary Christianity does not exist. Solitary Christians do, who, for whatever reason, don't want to have fellowship. Now, let me say, if there are believers in Russia who are in solitary confinement, then they'll do okay. Can you see what I mean? Obviously. If someone has no choice but to be solitary, if someone can't be in fellowship because of their faithfulness to God, okay, that's no problem. But what I'm talking about is the notion of people who don't want to be in fellowship. They're just off doing their thing, all right? That is a ridiculous idea. There is a corporate dimension to the Christian life, and that corporate dimension must never be ignored. Go to 1 Corinthians 12. 1 Corinthians chapter 12 and find verse 27. And Paul says this, Now you are the body of Christ, and individually members of it. And there are many Christians whose lives kind of are based on this verse, and this verse alone. Now it's certainly true. Here is the individual dimension to our Christian lives. We are individually part of Jesus. We are one with Jesus because we are believers. But... Go to Romans chapter 12. Romans chapter 12 and find verse 4. Can one be a solitary Christian? Can you go it alone? Well, you can say, well, I mean, I'm part of the body of Christ. I'm individually part of Jesus. And that's absolutely true. But that is half the story. Romans 12 and verse 4. For as in one body we have many members, and all the members do not have the same function, so we, though many, are one body in Christ, and individually members one of another. Do you see that? When Paul writes to Corinth, he's wanting to emphasise their individual relationship within the body of Christ with Jesus. So he says to the Corinthians, you are individually part of Christ. But to the Roman Church, he's putting the other balance and he says, look, you are also individually members one of another. Now what that means is quite simply this. A believer can never say that their allegiance is to Jesus alone. Whenever you meet believers whose kind of attitude is, Oh, well of course my allegiance is to Jesus. I, I, I just go as the Lord leads me. Alright. That is wrong. A believer cannot say that their allegiance is to Jesus alone. The very statement is a nonsense. Because our allegiance is also to our fellow believers as well, to our church. Now that does not mean in the slightest that our individual relationship with Jesus ever gets lost. Quite the contrary. To be part of a biblical church is to have your individual relationship with Jesus strengthened and enhanced. But without the safety and the support of fellowship and accountability one to another, can you see you run out of protection against Satan's deception and you simply end, you know, sort of up, up the river without a paddle or whatever the phrase is, absolutely up the gum tree. Can you see the nonsense of trying to maintain that Christianity is purely your own individual affair with Jesus? It isn't. It is a corporate affair between ourselves as individuals, Jesus, and the other believers that God has called us into fellowship with. Do you remember in the Sermon on the Mount when Jesus taught us what we call the Lord's Prayer? It's not the Lord's Prayer, it's our prayer. But it's our Father. Not loads of Christians coming together all saying, My Father. It's Christians coming together saying, Our Father. It's a corporate aspect. And I'll tell you why. Families will forever be a corporate affair. Shall I explain to you why that is? Because if you just have a potential daddy all on his own, or if you just have a potential mummy all on her own, unless this potential mummy and potential daddy get together in fellowship, there won't be any little potential little ones. Can you see the point? <laughs> Family is by definition a corporate affair, and we are part of Of Jesus's family. Right, fellowship is the sharing of our lives together. But sharing, the concept of sharing, has two elements in it. It has the element of giving, but it also has the element of receiving. So it's give and take. There are those two emphases in the concept of sharing. Now, what we're going to ask now is does the Bible give any hint that there's more of an emphasis on one aspect than the other? Or is it 50-50? I.e., is fellowship in the Christian life, is it give and take? Is it 50-50 or is it more one or the other? Well, in actual fact, the Bible in the Greek does make this absolutely clear. So remember, there are two aspects of sharing. Number one, is what you personally share, alright? What you are giving into that whatever you're sharing in common, aspect number one. The other aspect is what is shared with you, or what you receive from that sharing. Now, which one does Koinonia in the Bible emphasise? Go to Romans 15, which shouldn't be difficult, you should be in Romans 12, turn the page, Romans 15 and 5 verse 26, now I'm going to read two verses, this one and then we're going to go to Corinthians and we're going to ask the question, does koinonia appear in these verses? You won't know obviously, you haven't got Greek dictionaries but I will and I'll tell you when we've read them both. Righty-ho, Romans 16 verse 26, Romans 15 verse 26, this is what Paul says. Now the context of both these verses that I'm going to read, the context a money matters paul taking a collection of money from a certain church to be transferred to a poorer church all right now look what he says for macedonia and achaia have been pleased to make some contribution for the poor among the saints at jerusalem now go to 2 corinthians 9 paul dealing with exactly the same thing 2 Corinthians 9 verse 13, again talking about them sharing their money, and he says, "...under the test of this service, you will glorify God by your obedience in acknowledging the gospel of Christ, and by the generosity of your contribution for them and for all the others." Now what we're going to ask is this, in those two verses, is koinonia there? Yes, it is. Koinonia in the Greek is in both those verses. Do you know which word it is? You can probably guess. It's contribution. In those two verses, koinonia is translated contribution. So therefore, what we're going to see is that in our fellowship with each other, which has two aspects, give and take, giving and receiving, the emphasis in the Bible's teaching to us about the fellowship we have with each other is that for each one of us as individuals, the emphasis is not on receiving, the emphasis is on our giving. It's on what we contribute, okay? Okay. Now then, obviously, remember, fellowship is not just with each other, fellowship is with Jesus as well. Now, if we ask the same question of our fellowship with Jesus, which, which emphasis is it? The answer is obvious. Our individual fellowship with Jesus is based 100% on receiving. Our fellowship with Jesus is based only on what we receive from him. Now, why is that? Well, I'll tell you. We don't have anything to give to Jesus in that department. So when we're talking about our individual relationship with Jesus, our fellowship with him is based purely on receiving. For the simple reason, we have nothing individually to give. What can a sinner give to God? Can you see? But the point is, as soon as you have received something, then you do have something to hand on. Now, in the King James Version, Luke 6.38 and Matthew 10.8 are translated like this. Don't, Don't turn to it, but it translates Jesus as saying this, freely you have received, freely give. Now, there's the principle in the Bible. What you receive, you can therefore give. So, we've seen that our fellowship, with Jesus, our relationship of love with Jesus, is based on receiving because we have nothing to give to him. But our fellowship with each other is not based on receiving. Our fellowship with each other is based purely on giving. And for this reason, in fellowship with each other, we pass on to each other what we have each individually and personally received from the Lord. Let's get this absolutely straight. Our fellowship, our sharing as individuals with the Lord, is based on receiving. But our sharing or fellowship with each other is therefore based on giving. Because we give What we have received from the Lord. What Jesus gives to me, I pass on to you, I share it. That is my responsibility. What Jesus has given to you, you pass on to me. That is your sharing, that is your responsibility. So let's ask ourselves, let's get an idea. Okay, what is it then that we've received from Jesus that we're meant to pass on to each other? Right, go to John 13. I shall chuck up a few examples. John 13, and find verse 34. And this is Jesus speaking to the disciples. He says, a new commandment I give to you, that you love one another. Even as I have loved you, that you also love one another. Well, there's something we can pass on. Each one of us individually has received from Jesus his love. Therefore, we can pass it on to each other. There's something we've received that we can give. Go over to Colossians. Paul's epistle to the Colossians. Find chapter 3. Paul talking about how Christians ought to live together in the church. He says, if one has a complaint against another, forgiving each other, as the Lord has forgiven you, so you also must forgive. Each one of us personally has received forgiveness from Jesus. Therefore, we can pass on that forgiveness to each other. Go back to 2 Corinthians. 2 Corinthians chapter 9. 2 Corinthians 9 verse 8, start to get a little bit close to home here, the Bible frequently does. Paul says, and God is able to provide you with every blessing in abundance... So that you may always have enough of everything and may provide in abundance for every good work. So Paul says, God provides for you, therefore you provide in abundance for every good work. What is the context of 2 Corinthians chapter 9? We've already seen that a few minutes ago. It's talking about money. It's talking about giving. Jesus has given to us money and material benefits. There is something else that we can pass on something else that we can share. And in actual fact, so far, we've got, for instance, and these are only examples, we've got love, we've got forgiveness, money, and all the material things we have. There's a starter, things that we can share, because all those things we've received from Jesus. But in 1 Corinthians 4 verse 7, don't turn to it, I'll just read it to you, Paul asks the Corinthians a rhetorical question. He says this, He says, what have you that you didn't receive? Mm. So, you know, a rhetorical question. Paul says, what have you that you didn't receive? And what Paul is saying, you have received everything, absolutely everything, from the Lord himself. Right. What have we received from Jesus? Everything. What is fellowship? Fellowship is therefore sharing everything with each other. Time, money, possessions, and so it can go on. But at this point, we need to understand the real key to this, and it's important. Because the key is not what we share in fellowship, The key is that true fellowship is the sharing of yourself with others. Can you see that? It's not the things you have that you share. The main point of fellowship is that you actually share yourself. So we're called as a church to share and therefore give each other. I belong to you. You, be- I notice giggles of oh wow! I've always wanted one. Just what I've always wanted—a Beresford. No, can, can you see the point? <laughs> <laughs> and, alter- and, and you belong to me. We belong to each other. Now, the point is that when we talk about things like time, your time, or your money, or your sort of possessions, the tragedy is that all those things can be given instead. Do you see the subtlety of that? Time, money, you name it, all that can be given instead of giving yourself. Now, that's no good. You're meant to give yourself. Let's go to 1 Thessalonians. 1 Thessalonians chapter 2. And we'll actually see this. 1 Thessalonians chapter 2 and verse 8. Now look what, look, look what Paul says here. He says, So, being affectionately desirous of you, We were ready to share with you not only the gospel of God, but also our own selves. Because you had become very dear to us. Here's Paul saying to a church, look, we shared ourselves with you. We gave ourselves to you. Go over to Galatians or back to Galatians. Galatians chapter 2 and in verse 20, we want the second part, and he says, The life I now live in the flesh, I live by faith in the Son of God, who loved me and gave himself for me. Gave himself for me. Paul knew as an individual that what he had received from Jesus was Jesus. That's the point. It's not that God has given us things or given us salvation. He has, but God has given us himself. We've got Jesus. So Paul had received Jesus himself, therefore Paul gave himself to other believers. Can you see that is what God has called us to in fellowship? God gave himself to us, therefore we are to give ourselves to each other. And you see the point is that that when we really do that, when each one of us as individuals are given ourselves to the Lord, not just money, not just what you've got, not just your intelligence or whatever or your talents, when we have actually given ourselves to the Lord and remember... To give yourself to the Lord means that you've also given yourself to each other. If you are holding yourself back from your brothers and sisters, you are holding yourself back from God. You're still saved, it doesn't mean you're not saved, but can you see? We measure our relationship with God by our relationship with each other. Alright. Therefore, if we really give ourselves to the Lord and therefore to each other, then all the other things will naturally follow. Uh, the extent to which the sharing of all the things we've got has to go, that will sort itself out because God will lead us, all right? But the main point is that we have got to be given to each other. Let's now actually turn and see how fellowship worked in the New Testament church. And in doing so, we're going to be dealing with a very, very important point. Go, Go to Acts 2. Go to Acts 2. And already, already, there may be one or two people sitting here who have maybe got just that slight reservation about one or two of the things I've just said. This should clear it up. Acts chapter 2, we'll read from verse 44. And it says, And all who believed were together and had all things in common. And they sold their possessions and goods and distributed them to all as any had need. And day by day, attending the temple together and breaking bread in their homes, they partook of food with glad and generous hearts, praising God and having favour with all the people. Go to chapter 4. But what I want you to emphasise, they had all things in common. They sold their possessions and gave the money to the poor. Now over in chapter 4 and verse 32. Now the company of those who believed were of one heart and soul, And no one said that any of the things which he possessed was his own, but they had everything in common. And with great power the apostles gave their testimony to the resurrection of the Lord Jesus, and great grace was upon them all. There was not a needy person among them, for as many as were possessors of lands or houses sold them, and brought the proceeds of what was sold, and laid it at the apostles' feet, and distribution was made to each as any had need. Thus Joseph, who was surnamed by the apostles Barnabas, son of encouragement, a Levite and a native of Cyprus, sold a field which belonged to him and brought the money and laid it at the apostles' feet. Now at this point, I just want to throw up two other English words that we get from koinonia or koine, And they are these. Commune. A commune that comes from koinonia. And another one, communism, also comes from koinonia. And we've got to ask the question now, is that, on the basis of what we've read in the Acts of the Apostles just now, is that what the ideal church is supposed to be? Is it supposed to be like um, a kind of a communistic affair? having everything in common, or a kind of a Christian commune, is this what the church is actually supposed to be? Well, I'm going to show you quite clearly that no, that isn't the case. The confusion only arises for this reason. You see, when people read the Acts of the Apostles, and in particular the two bits that we read, we see that the extent of their sharing was so fantastic, they shared so freely that a quick glance makes it look a bit like they were a commune. Um, a bit like they were like a communistic thing, all right? But in actual fact, it wasn't that, it's, that's just a quick reading. And it's because they shared so wonderfully that it makes it look like that. So what was it? If it wasn't a commune, what was it? Okay, go to Deuteronomy. (coughs) Deuteronomy chapter 19. Something tremendously important here. Forget this and danger signals start to go off. Deuteronomy 19 verse 14. (coughs) A couple of little commandments here in the law which show us God's heart about something. And it's quite simply this. I'm going to show you that God believes ardently in private property. Deuteronomy 19 and verse 14. In the inheritance that you will hold in the land that the Lord your God gives you to possess, you shall not remove your neighbour's landmark which the men of old have set. Go over to chapter 27 of Deuteronomy. Chapter 7 of Deuteronomy. We want Deuteronomy 27. And verse 17. Right. And we have this. Cursed be he who removes his neighbour's landmark, and all the people shall say, Amen. Now, it's tremendously important here, God is forbidding them to do something. And what he is forbidding them to do is to deprive anyone of their rightful private property. You see, when Israel were moving in to the promised land, they had all the instructions given to them by God about how the land was to be apportioned. And every family and tribe, or every tribe, and then every individual family within the tribe, were apportioned an equal part of the land according to their size. So that as they moved into the land, God had already decided, and he told them in advance, the parts of Canaan which were to be given to the various tribes and then each family was to have their own private share of land within that uh, tribal territory and the point was this the way that the law worked on property and possessions under God's law through Moses was quite simply this that each person ended up having been given a bit of private property, and that piece of property could never pass out of their ownership. The only way it could is if they got conned by somebody, and hence the commandments that you shall not remove your neighbour's landmark. So therefore, can you see... That when we see the attitude of God about things like this, we see that private ownership, be it houses, private property, or be it possessions, private ownership is God's will. And that principle is nowhere overturned in the Bible. Now, some Christians say, but what about the verses that we've read in the Acts of the Apostles? What about chapter 2? What about chapter 4? Well, we've read them. Now, let's read part of Acts chapter 5, the immediate following chapter. And we're going to see the actual state of affairs in the early church rather than the one that a quick reading can mislead you into thinking and of course it's the story of ananias and Sapphira. Let's, let's let's just read some of it but a man named ananias with his wife Sapphira, sold a piece of property and with his wife's knowledge he kept back some of the proceeds and brought only a part and laid it at the apostles feet But Satan said, Ananias, why has Satan filled your heart to lie to the Holy Spirit and to keep back part of the proceeds of the land? And what happens is Ananias drops dead. We have the first sin unto death. the early church here and then a few minutes later his wife cops it as well and law says right i'm going to make an example of you because what you've done would be so dangerous if 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 other people copied you what this sin is so serious that i'm going to take you home all right because i can't let you get away with it okay now then what exactly was their sin against god let's read verse four because this is the key what's happened is they've sold a field and he's come to Peter, and he's given him part of the proceeds, alright? And it seems that he gets whacked with the sin unto death, because he didn't give the old lot, you see. Right, verse 4. Now, this is what Peter says. He says, while it remained unsold, did it not remain your own? Now, the point is that all this fantastic giving that was going on in the early church, and it was fantastic, it was free-will offering. It wasn't that you had to. There was nothing mandatory. And when it talks about people selling houses and fields, it doesn't mean they were selling the actual house that they lived in or the actual field they worked in. It's talking about the rich people who were selling the houses, kind of, you know, their their country cottage by the sea or something, you see. And some of their investments. They're saying, look, there are so many poor people that, I mean, I'm going to just... Make some of this money liquid, and I'm just going to pour it over the people who are poor. Can you see? But they didn't have to. They did it because they wanted to, and it was getting rid of, if you like, excess baggage. Look after the poor. It's not having to sign away their own private houses. It wasn't that at all. So he says, while it remained unsold, did it not remain your own? Peter's saying, look, you didn't have to do this, Ananias didn't have to, no-one's telling you. And then he says, and after it was sold, was it not at your disposal? Now, here's what Ananias did. He sold the stuff, and then he came to Peter, and he gave Peter a percentage of the price he got. But making out, he was giving 100%. The sin of Ananias and Sapphira was that they were lying. It was hypocrisy. They were making out they were doing something that they hadn't. And what Peter says, he says, right, let's get something straight, Ananias. Number one, you didn't have to sell it, all right? Because it's yours. And he says, number two, even if you do sell it, even after you've got the money, he says, it's still in your hands. You are free to give and hold back what you like. So here we have Peter In the early church, reaffirming the doctrine of private ownership. There is nothing in the Acts of the Apostles that go against it. (coughs) It's just that they were so thrilled that they were kind of selling things that they didn't need to raise money because they had such desperately poor people in their church. So then, in the Acts of the Apostles, we do not have a Christian commune we do not have a Christian community with a common purse the elders being in charge of it that is not what you have in the Bible that is not what the Bible teaches And therefore, there is no obligation upon us whatsoever for anything like that. And we've got to bear this in mind, especially as today, and I think this is probably more the influence of the hippies in the 60s than the Bible, but we have many, many Christians who are into this community thing. They all want to buy big houses and live together and have a common purse. Well, I'm not saying that there can be no circumstances in which God does that. If God wants to, he can. But I get the impression that an awful lot of Christians who get mixed up in things like that end up under the idea that that's the way Christians really ought to be. That is a deception. God leads someone to it? Fine. But there must never be anything to suggest that community living is God's will for us. Be very, very careful of things like that. We live as a community in the sense that we are God's community within a secular community. But all this kind of selling up, having everything in common in the sense of no private ownership, common purse, a kind of a Christian communism, that is not what the Bible teaches. But isn't it fantastic to realise that so generous were they in their sharing that at a quick glance it looks like it. I remember hearing a marvellous story once, and it was some missionaries who sort of got into China. And there was a whole village in China that got converted. This whole village came to Jesus. And when the authorities found out, they went absolutely loopy. And the reason they went loopy is that communism was working in this village, can you <laughs> see? They, they went mad, you see, because it was kind of the kind of sharing that communists say that they want can happen amongst God's people. But the difference is this. When it's the world, if you have to enforce sharing, you do away with private ownership. That is evil. That is not of God. But what's beautiful in the Lord's family is that we have our own possessions and they are in our ownership. And that is right and that is good. But we say, yes, they are ours. We are the stewards of them. But my goodness, I just want to share them with my brothers and sisters in Christ. Isn't that a wonderful thing? Right, we now, from the two talks we've done, last time and this time, we now have two definitions. Definition number one, a church. You remember the Greek word, ecclesia, a church, a people who are called out of the world by God in a local area to share their lives together and to live in obedience to His Word. A church is a group of people called together out of the world to live in obedience to the Word of God, to live in submission to the Bible. That's definition number one. Definition number two, we now have fellowship, koinonia. Koinonia the sharing of our lives together as that people who have been called out of the world by God to live in submission to what the Bible teaches. Let's remind ourselves, what is a church? It's God's local family. It's the people he lives with. Alright, what is fellowship? Fellowship are the loving relationships with each other as brothers and sisters in that family. Go to John's Gospel, chapter 17. John 17, and if you find verse 20, this is the, the, the prayer of Jesus in the Garden of Gethsemane. He says, I do not pray for these only, but also for those who believe in me through their word. That, that's us, all right? He was praying for the apostles, the twelve, and then he says, but Lord, I'm praying For those who believe in me through them. Well, they wrote the new Testament, didn't they? We believe because we've heard the teaching of the Bible. So we've come to Jesus, all right? So Jesus here is praying for us. Here, what's he praying? That they may all be one, even as you, Father, are in me and I am in you. That they may also be in us, so that the world may believe that you have sent me. The glory which you've given me, I've given to them. Do you remember the Shekinah glory coming down in the temple of God? Who's the temple of God? We are Pentecost. The Shekinah glory falling upon us when we're baptised with the Spirit. He says, The glory you gave me, I've given to them, that they may be one, even as we are one. I in them, you in me, that they may become perfectly one, so that the world may know that you sent me and has loved them even as you have loved me. Now, can you see what Jesus is praying there? He's praying that through our oneness, the world might know that the Father sent him. And there's something astounding here. God has given unbelievers the divine right to have the truth of the gospel demonstrated to them by the oneness of Of believers. That is what Jesus is praying here. He is praying that we might be one so that the world would know that the Father sent him. This is a divine right that God has given to unbelievers and it is our responsibility as believers to ensure that they are given their divine right in this respect and their divine right is that they see our oneness. Alright, oneness, unity, sharing together, fellowship. Can you see that's what Jesus is praying about? It's through our fellowship together that unbelievers in Chigwil, that unbelievers in this area will become Christians. It is through our fellowship together It's when they see the sharing of our lives together as a church that they will become Christians. Why? Well, I'll tell you, because they'll meet Jesus in his home. In us, the church. We saw last time, with God's all moving around, that really, finally, God likes a mobile home, doesn't he? He doesn't like to be tied down in one place for too long, tabernacle, temple, you know, you name it. And of course now he's got himself the, the perfect mobile home. Millions of people. You can't get more mobile than that. Now the beauty of the church is this, if someone wants to come and see Blyndra and I in our home, they've got to come to us. Well, the church can't sit around on its backside expecting that unbelievers is just going to flock in. Oh, oh, we've heard there's a meeting here. That's ridiculous. We have to go out to them. But can you see, the beautiful thing is that they still meet Jesus in his home because they meet Jesus in his mobile home. In us, the church, where we work, our friends, if we go to the pictures with a mate, whatever, have someone round for coffee. Unbelievers, can you see, just mixing with people in general, they are going to meet Jesus in his home, in us, the church. And you see, the thing is this. (coughs) They will then see how much Jesus loves them by the way that we are loving each other. Do you see that? In our sharing of our lives together, they will see how much Jesus loves them by the way that his love is reflected amongst us, his people. They'll know the love of Jesus by looking at our love for each other. And you know what will happen then? They'll say, wow, I want to be part of that family. there will always be unbelievers who don't want to, no matter what. But the thing is, there are going to be many unbelievers and they're going to say, I just want some of that. Mm. I just want to be in that family. Mm. Right, so we have now seen what fellowship is. But we've got to keep applying it to ourselves as a church. We've got to keep reminding ourselves what it is. And at this point, we've got to remind ourselves what it isn't. Through this series, and indeed through all the teaching that we've done here over the years and that we will do in future years, unless we apply it to ourselves and live it out, it's a waste of time, it's waffle. We have got to keep examining ourselves by the Word of God and make sure we are applying it. And we must apply the teaching of the Bible about fellowship to ourselves as a church. Now then, underline this in your hearts. Going to meetings isn't fellowship whether here or anywhere else. Corporate gatherings such as this one are good and they are necessary. Yes, to meet together as a corporate church is vitally important, absolutely. But can you see, I mean especially here on the Tuesdays, because Tuesdays is our teaching night, Basically, you come here, it's half hour of worship and then you have to sit down shut up and listen to me going <laughs> on, alright? So, I mean, the best you get is a full frontal of me and the back of someone's neck. I mean, I'm sorry, but obviously we've got to have a teaching evening. So, can you see that Tuesday? I mean, that's, that's a dead duck. As far as fellowship's concerned, isn't it? But then fellowship isn't what we're here for tonight. We're here for teaching. All right. Now, Sundays is better because we got much longer and stuff like that. But it's still not perfect, is it? Can you see? To say that fellowship is going to Tuesdays or Sundays or whatever, no, 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 no. Can you see real fellowship? The type of fellowship that we've read about in the New Testament church and the type of fellowship that God wants amongst us in this church, that, okay, can only go on and happen and grow throughout the rest of the week when we're not at meetings over months and over years. So if in a few months' time, all right, You're still coming to the meetings, but you haven't got to know anyone outside of the meetings, then there's something wrong there. might be with you. might be that you're not interested. Fine, that's your problem, but it might be with us. We've got to watch it that no one's left out. Can you see? That is where fellowship really takes place, though. It's getting involved in each other's lives. It's getting wrapped up in the warp and woof of our existence as individuals and our experience. That is fellowship. All right. Now then, obviously, we're not talking about kind of interfering. When I say that fellowship is getting involved in each other's lives, that is right. But the principle is that you're only free to involve yourself in the life of another person to the extent that they permit you. This is no excuse for interference and indeed I believe that behind many, many Christian communities and the common purse lie leaders who like to know too much about their flock. Get everyone under the same roof all the time, especially with a common purse and you control them. We are not talking about interference. This is not an excuse for bored people to start interfering with everybody else. That's not what we're talking about at all. But can you see it is getting involved in each other's lives to the extent that you are given permission and that the extent of that permission will grow, obviously. But it's really getting to know each other well and that cannot be done simply in meetings. Incidentally, many Christians talk about having fellowship. And they go to a zap-bang meeting and they come home and they say, oh, we have wonderful fellowship tonight. They did not have wonderful fellowship. They had a zap-bang meeting. (laughs) They they were a face in a crowd. I'm not necessarily saying there's anything wrong with that it depends the sort of rubbish going on at that zap bang meeting doesn't it but many many christians their existence i mean you know how i describe it they've got the ring in the nose and they're herded around from meeting to meeting <laughs> doing obeisance to all the big boys different meeting every week all right i mean often as husbands and wives they haven't had time to talk to each other during the week because they've been too busy going to meetings, let alone talk to anybody else. And then they've got the nerve to say, oh, we've had wonderful fellowship. This, that isn't fellowship. That, 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 that is fantasy. That is illusion. That is just losing yourself in the crowd. If you look at unbelievers, you'll find that amongst unbelievers who are running away from their lives, some people they've got to have noise morning noon and night. If there's not noise they have to think and they don't want to think. They don't want to face the reality of their lives, all right? So they run away. Now some people do it through becoming workaholics. Always at the, you know, always at work or always doing something, busy 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 busy, all right? Other unbelievers do it by going down the pub every night. Maybe their problem is at home, they're not happily married, so off they go down the pub every night. Hundreds of ways that unbelievers have to run away from the things that are wrong in their own lives. Shall I tell you how charismatic Christians do it? They go to lots of meetings. And at the end of those meetings, If they're really feeling bad about their lives, you know what they can do? They can go up to the front and someone can lay hands on them. And if they're really feeling blessed, they can fall over. And they think, Thank you, Lord, you've met my need. Now, their need is deep and meaningful relationships with other people. Not having some big boy push you over at the front of a big meeting. Can you see? It's a running away from each other's lives. Something else as well. There are always people out there, all right, with the kind of the big ministries, the healing ministries, the counselling ministers. They're the the dodgy ones, all right. And there's a great tendency for people, there's a mentality amongst Christians that you've got to get to the experts. Can you see the experts out there? (laughs) So they get a problem and off they go to one of the experts to a conference or something like that. Now, can you see, if as a fellowship, if every time you or I get a problem, we run off to an expert who's nothing to do with us, how on earth are we ever going to learn to look after each other? Can you see? How am I going to learn to help you in your problems? If every time you've got them, you're built off to some big boy who's nothing to do with us and how on earth are you ever going to learn to help me if every time I've got a problem I belt off to some conference to get my problem solved can you see fellowship is there saying look we're a family we are here to love and to care for each other we're going to share (coughs) our lives with each other can you see how different true fellowship is from the Christian scene today the kind of the the, the mad meeting philosophy which prevails. True fellowship is relationships. It's deep, it's not shallow. That is why the heart of worship according to the Bible, and this is what we do here, this is why the heart of church worship or our worship here is the church meal or the Lord's Supper or communion. This is why it's a fellowship meal that is at the heart of our worship. Go to 1 Corinthians. 1 Corinthians chapter 10. Find verse 16. <coughs> now this is Paul talking about the Lord's Supper. This is teaching that he's giving about the Lord's supper. <laughs> <Lord's cuppa. laughs> <laughs> <about laughs> Sorry about that. <laughs> about the Lord's <laughs> Supper. Now there, look what he says. Verse 16. Verse 16. I'll be better next week, I promise. All right. He says, look, the cup of blessing which we bless, is it not a communion in the blood of Christ? That's why it gets called communion. The bread which we break, is it not a communion in the body of Christ? Now, why is the church meal the heart of our worship? Well, here, this word translated communion, or it might be participation, if you've got fairly modern versions do you know what it is it's koinonia it's fellowship it means the sharing of our lives together you see the thing is this is why communion services aren't a little bit of bread and a little bit of wine you know and you kind of go up and it's all a big individual affair i mean you know people sort of say you know the bread is the body of christ and the wine is the blood of christ it's not look we are the body of christ That's what the Bible teaches, and I'll tell you what as well. It's not just that we are the body of Christ, we are also the blood of Christ. Why are we the blood of Christ? Blood is part of the body. Can you see? If you're going to say that we are the body of Christ, it also means we are the blood of Christ, because blood is part of the body. But what is so significant is that in the Old Testament, God said that the life is in the blood. Can you see? And because Jesus is amongst us, we are the body and blood, we are the life of Jesus in his world. So therefore, the cup of blessing which we bless, is it not a koinonia, a sharing of our lives together in the blood of Christ, the church? The bread which we break, is it not a koinonia, a sharing of our lives together in the body of Christ? What is the body of Christ? It's the church. And the reason that it's a church meal is because even the world knows that eating a meal together is a sign of friendship. It's a sign of a relationship that you have together. Go back to Acts 2. Go back to Acts 2. Acts 2 verse 44, we've read these once, we need to read them again. And it says, And all who believed believe were together, and had all things in common, and they sold their possessions and goods, and distributed them to all as any had need. And day by day, attending the temple together, and breaking bread in their homes, they partook of food with glad and generous hearts. Now, they, a lot of Christians got a funny idea, it says here that they broke bread in each other's homes, that every night you'd have little groups of Christians all over Jerusalem, having a little bit of bread and a little sip of wine. Mm-hmm. No, it doesn't mean that at all. Breaking bread is a Jewish idiom, it's a Jewish colloquialism for having a meal together. Not rushing around having little communion services all over the place. It means that they were getting to know each other. They were saying, come on round. Come round tomorrow night. And if you're going to come round tomorrow night, well come straight from work, have a meal with us. Can you see that they were getting to know each other and that the sign of their fellowship was that they were eating together because that's what friends do. Therefore, can you see that the church meal or the Lord's Supper, all right, is in macrocosm once a week what day-to-day fellowship is all about the rest of the week in microcosm? Do you see? As individual families, you eat together at home during the week, all right? Now, we do that once a week as the family of God. But also week by week, during the week, each one of us are supposed to, and this is what fellowships all are about, we're supposed to be entertaining our brothers and sisters to get to know them, to pray with them, to see how we can help them, you see. And therefore, we do that, and, you know, it's good come round eat with us and again can you see that the church meal when we do it all together is the kind of the church life expression in macrocosm what real fellowship is all about going on through the rest of the week day to day. Do you see that? That fellowship, true fellowship is going to grow over weeks and years. That is why if you're one of these people who gets involved in a church and then after three weeks you're off, gets involved in another one after three weeks are off. Now, I know there are complications. If you become part of a church and it's up the spout, you get out. I'm not talking about that, but I'm talking about Christians that even give them a biblical church, after three weeks they're off and joining another... Can you see? That is why it can't work. They're never having fellowship. It's an ongoing commitment and experience. Right, so we are a church. We are God's home, and we are God's family in this area. And fellowship, as we have seen, is the basis of our relationships with each other, as brothers and sisters in that family. And the basis of our relationship with each other in this group, as a church, should be the giving of ourselves to each other the sharing of our lives together. We ought to come along and we ought to partake, be it at the meetings or getting together in each other's homes during the week. We ought to partake in that fellowship, not to receive, but to give. If your involvement is simply because you think you want to receive, then that won't work. But when you've settled in your mind that Jesus' will for you as part of a fellowship isn't what you can receive, but it's what you give. If you become obedient to that, then you will discover the truth of something that Jesus said in the Gospels. And he said this, give and it shall be given. If you give and do what the Bible says, then you'll receive, then you'll be blessed. But If you're only in it, if you're only in this church for the benefits that you think you can get, if you're here only to take and to receive, then don't be surprised to find yourself over the months getting emptier and emptier and emptier. But come along to give and then you'll go away full to overflowing. Next time we look at the threefold aim of a church, we will end it there.